Defence Dialogue, a podcast discussing contemporary challenges in the area of European security and defence. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Nicholas Novaki. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Wilfried Martin Centre's Defence Dialogue podcast series. Uh, my name is Dr. Nicholas Novaki and I'm very happy that uh, you have decided to listen to another episode of this uh, podcast series um, uh, for, for, from wherever you, know, you might be joining. It's always a, a delight to have um, people listening in. And uh, with me here today uh, is my uh, colleague from the communications team, Mr. Theo Larue. Uh, thank you so much, Theo, for coming again. And uh, this will be your second uh, episode in participating in this series. So thanks again for uh, tagging in. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. We are recording this episode on Wednesday, the 9th of November, uh, which is a day after the U.S. midterm elections. And my, my initial idea was to make this somehow about the U.S. midterm elections. Um, but given that the full results haven't quite come through yet, and also I haven't, to be on, completely honest with you, haven't had the proper chance to digest everything and um, figure out what it actually means for European defense cooperation as well. So I decided to delight you all with a brief discussion on um, the future of EU-UK security and defense cooperation, because there are some interesting developments in that field as well. Um, as you might know, I mean, Britain and the EU haven't really cooperated or haven't cooperated in the field of security and defense uh, since Brexit, uh, Brexit happened. The UK has, of course, cooperated with NATO, uh, with its European partners, like through NATO and then through um, frameworks uh, such as the Joint Expeditionary Force, uh, which is a British-led uh, initiative in which quite a few European countries participate as well. So the UK is very much an active part and an active element of the European security architecture. Um, but it has shied away um, from uh, cooperating uh, with the EU as an, or as an organization since the Brexit uh, divorce. And the UK's 2021 um, integrated review on, on foreign security and defense policy, which was this major document that was produced during the prime ministership of Boris Johnson, uh, that gave a broad overview of how the UK sees itself and its, its place in the world, also like didn't really mention um, how the UK sees its relationship developing with the European Union in the field of security and defense. So there's been like quite a obvious uh, glaring gap uh, in, in, in this field for quite some time. And given, of course, the political post-Brexit political climate in London, it's been politically uh, very difficult uh, for any British prime minister like since Brexit to seriously contemplate uh, cooperating with the EU as, a, as an organization in, in many different fields, including uh, security and defense, which Britain has decided to do rather nationally or then through these other frameworks that's, that I just mentioned. Uh, but the interesting thing and, and the reason why, why I wanted to talk about this topic in, in today's episode is that now for the first time since Brexit, there, there are signs that the UK is moving a little closer to the EU uh, in the field of security and defense. And um, in particular, um, during the prime ministership of Liz Truss, uh, the UK decided to apply to join the EU's military mobility project. Uh, which is a project in the framework of um, uh, this awfully uh, named initiative called Permanent Structured Cooperation, or PESCO, as it's often called in the uh, Brussels bubble. 
Um, and uh, military mobility see, is, is a Dutch-led uh, project that seeks to cut legal red tape, uh, facilitate the creation of better infrastructure that would then make it easier to move like military personnel and other, other military capabilities within Europe uh, to make it more uh, to make it easier for Europe to respond quickly and in a very timely fashion if something happens within Europe's borders or in the immediate vicinity of Europe. So something that would ultimately be very beneficial also for NATO and would enhance NATO's own like deterrence posture like if it uh, is successful in doing uh, what it uh, set out to do. And PESCO or permanent structured cooperation, like this, this word monster is um, um, uh, an EU framework that is primarily um, designed to facilitate joint capability, the establishment of joint capability development projects. But there are also other kind of like projects and initiatives that have been like set up in the framework of PESCO. But the basic initial idea behind it was that it is only for the most willing and interested and capable countries who want to deepen their cooperation in, in the specific field. Mm. And um, joining the military mobility project, I think, is a very good uh, issue for the UK because it wouldn't cost uh, much for, the, for Britain domestically. Like, it wouldn't cost a lot of political capital. Do you think people in the UK pay attention to these kind of things? No, like I mean, not not a lot. And to be honest with you, I don't think a lot of people like in in, in the EU like pay pay a lot of mm, attention that's true. to it as well. Yeah, because you can hardly expect the British to pay attention when we no, do. no, because we're talking about a fairly technical uh, issue here. Right. I mean, the, the EU defense cooperation in general has gotten extremely technical, and like the military yeah. mobility. We're talking about uh, like the legal rules and regulations that apply to the movement of military personnel and capabilities, and then traffic, like actual like traffic infrastructure as well. So it's quite nitty gritty stuff. Not the most sexiest topic, but still mm -hmm. very important. Um, but I'm sure like there will be people uh, like diehard die Brexiteers who will also uh, pick this up more and more. Like once the issue has been approved, and say that uh, Britain has decided to sell its post-Brexit soul, and it is now participating in an EU ar EU army again, like which would be a complete nonsense. Um, but I mean that will of course happen at some some way yeah. or another. Uh, we'll see more of that. Uh, I'm absolutely uh, certain. And uh, I think the good thing is that the EU ambassadors. Or the member states ambassadors in the political and security committee have already approved uh, the Britain's application to participate in, the, in this project. Uh, so it's been approved at the working group level. And um, my understanding is that it will be finalized at the uh, Foreign Affairs Council uh, next week. Uh, so quite quite shortly. So by the time this episode is, is coming out, I mean... Uh, uh, you might already want to check the uh, EU website and, and, and the news because by that time, it's very possible that the UK has already uh, joined that project. Do you think that um, if Putin doesn't invade Ukraine, the UK still joins? Um, yeah, I think so, because um, there are like two, I think, major like driving forces like be like behind Britain's decision to apply to this project. Like on the one hand, I think the Ukraine war has highlighted the necessity of um, boosting um, cooperation like through different types of fields uh, that make it easier for Europe to respond timely and effective manner to move troops and military capabilities within Europe if something happens either within Europe or in the immediate vicinity. Mm -hmm. So by participating in this project, um, the UK will then contribute also 
um, to NATO's overall deterrence posture, because when if the EU makes it easier to move capabilities and troops within Europe, it, that will automatically benefit NATO, of course, as well, which is ultimately in charge of like the really hardcore security stuff, such as like deterring Russian mm-hmm. aggression against Europe. Right. And then secondly, it's it's of course kind of motivated by the political desire to improve ties between London and Brussels, like, I mean, which have been like rather have suffered quite a bit to mm-hmm. be honest like since uh, since the brexit referendum in 2016 and since brexit yeah, show, was, was good, show good faith on, exactly, on both sides yeah. exactly so it's a low-hanging fruit um right. uk participating in eu defense cooperation as a third country right that will not cost the uk much uh, domestically because let's remember that eu defense cooperation is an extremely intergovernmental field the supranational EU institutions like the European Parliament and the Commission have very little, uh, very little to no say in that area. And um, the UK, in a way, is an equal partner to the extent that that is possible uh, to be an equal partner as a third country. But, but nevertheless, I mean, it is more or less equal to the EU, mm-hmm. EU countries participating in, 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 in right. this project. And it's easier to sell domestically as well because... Um, in addition to this field being intergovernmental, uh, Canada, the US, and Norway are already participating in military mobility as third countries as well. So you, they, Britain can just say that we're simply joining our, our, our transatlantic uh, right. and nor- northern, northern European partners like in this effort. So we're not kind of selling our uh, post-Brexit uh, mm-hmm. soul and, and uh, undermining uh, Brexit in a way. Um, and I think kind of going forward like i mean this will have quite positive impacts on 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 um on, on both sides because i think the the initial hope like if, if we completely now like overlook the the thing uh the the nitty-gritty stuff about military mobility uh whether it will succeed in eliminating this legal red tape and um, whether it will seek improving Europe's um, traffic infrastructure and creating dual-use traffic infrastructure that could be used to move uh, military capabilities and forces. Um, It could create this more positive dynamic in the UK's post-Brexit relationship with the EU that could then perhaps like spill over into other areas as well even uh, into c- civilian infrastructure for instance yeah no but just kind of other policy areas as well that okay like if 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 we create trust and mutual goodwill in, yeah, in the area of defense that, cooperation yeah we show each other we can still, we can still yeah. do this yeah then perhaps kind of things like fisheries policy and and um uh, disputes over the Northern Ireland Protocol could eventually become a little bit easier to manage as well. Although, like I mean, we're talking about issues that are a little bit more politically sensitive than than this one. But nevertheless, I think there's a possibility that through gradual demonstrations of goodwill, I mean, Britain and the European Union as an organization like could reach a better, mm-hmm. better, better relationship as well. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, so it's it's it would be a very cheap cheap way to like improve these um, EU UK ties, and I think it's it's also a recognition of the fact in London that um, Brexit, although extremely like transformative in, in 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 many ways for for the UK as a society and as a, as a European country, it hasn't fundamentally transformed uh, Britain's geography. So Britain, whatever it might think of the European Union and its willingness to cooperate with the European Union on different issues. It continues to be kind of sucked into these European processes, like when something happens in Europe that will, of course, like impact like Britain in different ways as well. So it's very much in Britain's interest to find 
these avenues of cooperation, um, I think, to uh, boost um, mutual cooperation and, and, and um, create a uh, more positive environment in the post-Brexit relationship, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And have there been um, any European countries that have been particularly vocal in their support for, for the UK joining, or has it been uh, more of a uniform... Uh, Uniform approach. I think the I think I remember kind of seeing that the Dutch, like who lead the project, I mean, have been of course kind of very happy that the uh, right. and, and, uh, welcoming uh, to the UK. Of course, and very happy that the UK is joining, and then um, the Baltic countries as well. I mean, of course, like have been very happy uh, because if the UK is participating, and eventually it will become more integrated into the project, to the framework, and it'll be easier for Britain to move its troops and capabilities on the European continent then like their deterrence and their security will 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 enhance as well. Um, I haven't I haven't noticed anyone any country that would have been against that I think uh, and, and the fact that it's this this issue has already been approved uh, at the working group level uh, at the political and security committee I think speaks volumes about how welcome a development like this is like in the um uh, in, in in the post Brexit EU UK relationship, mm-hmm. and uh, indeed, I mean it's it's very possible, and it looks very much that it'll be approved um, next week uh, in the Foreign Affairs Council. So so again, by the time this is out, I mean this it has already likely happened, and uh, then we'll get a chance to hopefully talk about uh, other aspects of uh, um, EU UK cooperation in security and defence. Um, I haven't seen, the, the interesting thing is that I haven't yet seen much uh, from the new Rishi uh, Sunak government and like what the Sunak government thinks of this because of course like now there's a new government in London, uh, this trust is no no longer uh, a prime minister and and um, I would assume that there there hasn't been a major uh, policy case policy change uh, with regard to this because we're talking about a fairly minor issue and of course mm-hmm. it's in the interest of the Sunak government as well to contribute to continue these kind oh, of absolutely grat- yeah it's going to be a much more I mean it's going to be a very technocratic government and like you explained it makes perfect sense uh, for the UK and the EU so there's a, I don't see any reason why they would want to deviate from such a such an obvious, uh, such an obvious uh, policy course. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. And and um, I think um, I remember that the um, administration or government of um, Liz Truss also announced that there would eventually be a, a new defense policy review that the UK would conduct. Um, and the fate of that as well, like doing this under, under this government, uh, I'm not sure of, but I would assume that processes like defense and security policy processes that were put in place under the previous government, I mean, would also like continue. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, I, I think this is an extremely positive step um, for um, for the European Union and the, and the UK in the post-Brexit relationship. And um, it could really help build um, positive uh, goodwill and like positive like feelings on both sides that could ultimately then enhance uh, collective European security like mm-hmm. NATO's like deterrence posture and um, make Europe a little bit more responsive I mean if if it eventually succeeds in in, in, in the aims and goals that it's uh, set out to do yeah I don't suppose there's been much of an international response uh, you know from, no not too know. much because I mean it's it's like I mentioned it's um 
even in the British na- British national press, it hasn't been noticed like that much. Mm-hmm. I've seen a couple of couple of news articles. There was a one very one good article in the Times, um, but beyond that, it has gone rather unnoticed. I would say, right? Um, also in Brussels-based media, rather unnoticed, um, which is somewhat surprising, like given that it's 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 still a relatively big policy change uh, in London, like after after Brexit. Um, but I, w- I would assume that perhaps um, London would like to keep it, or white, the, white, the government in Whitehall would like to keep keep it relatively under under wraps and yeah. do it in a low key way to avoid creating a whole story. Out of exactly, it, yeah. avoid kind of creating a story that would then inevitably attract the uh, Eurosceptic press. Attract mm-hmm. attention from um, Eurosceptic uh, members of uh, of, of uh, the British Parliament, and then get sucked into again. Uh, into yeah, a whole this. conversation about who we are, what we are. Yeah, what we stand for. Yeah. And, and the Conservative uh, Party spent so much time divided. I think they're trying to avoid that whole uh, yeah whole conversation as much as they can. Exactly, and I, I think kind of that's a it's a smart way to do, and it's it's a starting something positive uh, by cooperating on something rather technical and unsexy yeah rather yeah. than like going all guns blazing <laughs> like all industries rejoining the, the single market tomorrow. exactly yeah, so of course so i think um, it's, it's it's a good way to good way to go and, yeah and um uh and we can, we have to see like what the uh, eventual kind of results outcomes are and, and if and if this positive dynamic if we can already call it a positive dynamic i I think it's very it's a bit difficult to call it a positive dynamic because it's it's not really super in the public eye yet Mm -hmm. but it really suggests that like i mean there has been like some form of um mentality change uh in london towards the european union Mm -hmm. partly out of necessity partly out of politics but whether it will continue i mean we have to have to see of course yeah and I think unless uh, I don't really like have anything else to say, I think I'm just kind of interested to see, I mean, what, what will happen. Um, do you have any other points to mention like Theo that I, I didn't well, like think about? Well, I suppose I'd be curious, uh, you know, um, I'd be curious what you think the next uh, or the future for UK um, EU cooperation could hold if, uh, if this indeed proves fruitful for both sides as it most probably mm. will. Uh, where they could turn their attention to next? Uh, no, it's a good, good point, good question. Um, I mean, it's 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 because, like you mentioned, obviously, you know, the the outlying issues, fisheries, um, you know, the Northern Ireland Protocol, etc. But as you say, those are more politically loaded topics, which yeah. they might not want to get into immediately. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm curious to know where they might then. You know, we've we've kind of freed ourselves from the the reality tv brexit that has animated the conversation I for like so that. long i yeah. like that uh, that's saying reality tv brexit. Yeah. Yeah. well i uh, i have very very um strong memories if i can use that term of uh theresa may trying to get her brexit deal voted on and three times it was voted off it was voted down by members of her own party and she had to resign shortly afterwards or a few months afterwards so that to me is like reality TV Brexit, and thankfully we've passed that, and <laughs> it's returned to the yeah. the quiet negotiating rooms full of suits. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I um, and skirts. Yeah, and I skirts. Guess. Of course, it is. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is the modern day. Um, but I suppose I don't know. Perhaps uh, I guess obviously supply chains might be might be a big one, um, just by virtue of necessity. Um, 
perhaps agriculture. A lot's been said about uh, the UK struggling with uh, temporary workers for for um, for their soft fruits industry, mm. for instance. They've had to. There's a whole national conversation. You know, do we want to have uh, do we want to have a soft fruits industry if we can't get the people to pick them? So I don't. I have no idea, but. Uh, I can imagine that there, there, there's going to be a, a fair few areas where they're going to want to focus their attention on. Yeah, absolutely. And like there, there's so many um, policy areas that have suffered uh, from Brexit, and, and and not only of Brexit, but then just this like general, um, I think, political nastiness and 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 uh, mm-hmm. verbal hostility that we've seen uh, yeah. over the past kind of couple of years, which has really damaged uh, things, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I mean, if this, this, and I mean the, the the UK's participation in the very technical military mobility project will help create this uh, more positive dynamic that we discussed, then I could easily envision that eventually the UK could sign a framework participation agreement with the EU that would make it possible for Britain, for example, to participate in some EU uh, military and civilian missions, which would mm-hmm. not be completely out of the question. Oh, for sure. It's, it's a logical step. Yeah. It will be a logical step, and it's it's something that Britain could really, in, in which Britain could play a really meaningful and effective role because Britain has one of the most capable, or perhaps the most capable, like armed forces in in in, uh, in Europe uh, at the moment. Or I think it's 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 a duel between France and Britain. Yeah, Britain I'm afraid I'm rather biased on that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, don't know if I would agree, but that's that is certainly something, and I think that would be quite wel- welcomed as well. Mm-hmm. And then I think what the timeline of of all this uh, would be it's it's hard to say, but it it depends I think fundamentally on what 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 the comfort com- comfort level uh, back in London is, how happy and how willing the uh, government uh, in London is to. Uh, cooperate more actively with the European Union in different uh, different policy fields in which it's not already uh, uh, cooperating. Um, but like I said uh, earlier, I mean, I think geog- geography dictates to some extent, and that we'll, we'll eventually eventually we'll see um, clo- like clo- more and more uh, closer cooperation like between the two sides, mm-hmm. uh, because um, Brexit hasn't like changed the fundamental like rules of geography like in Europe and. There are still like a lot of necessity uh, for for the UK and the European Union to cooperate, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I mean it's it's uh, we are uh, where we are at the moment, and that is um, um, for t- f- finally some good news I think in the uh, um, post relationship. So I think um, I don't think I have anything uh, else to add uh, to today's episode, uh, and um, I would just like to. Thank you, Theo, like for being here again. Like it's been really nice to like talk to you uh, again about uh, this stuff. Yeah, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And um, I hope all of you like who joined uh, the podcast uh, have listened like to today, uh, have enjoyed listening to today's uh, discussion. And uh, please stay tuned. Like we'll record uh, hopefully uh, at least one more podcast uh, before the end of the year, so you'll have something to uh, uh, tune into and to and, and listen to uh, before the end of the year. And and uh, perhaps we'll make that one out of the U.S. midterms. Like even that this was supposed to be the U.S. midterm episode, but uh, we'll see. Uh, perhaps I'll come up with something else in, on last minute. But anyways, uh, hopefully all of you will have a pleasant day, uh, a good morning or pleasant afternoon uh, wherever you are. And um, talk to you again soon. Bye.
That was today's episode of Defence Dialogue. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.